Hi, I'm Melissa Ritz, and this is Served, a podcast about female military veterans and their experiences in and out of uniform. Today, I'm joined by Air Force veteran Dr. Bethany Miller. Bethany was a pilot in the military and in the commercial airline industry. She's also a board member at the Abingdon Foundation, which offers opportunities to young women interested in STEAM-based career fields. She's also the author of the Flex Agents Guidebook, How to Identify and Advance Your Life's Work. Bethany, thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you. I'm excited. You and I were recently introduced through our mutual friend, Kelly. And when I checked out your website, I was crossing my fingers and toes, hoping that you would agree to come on the mic with me, not just because you're a fellow Air Force vet, but because you've found success on both a linear and nonlinear slash traditional career path. And I really admire that quality of exploration and curiosity. And I wanted to know, is that something that you've always known about yourself, being curious and having the follow through on what if? Yes, absolutely. Um, Thank you for reaching out because I think that we all gain so much more when you just ask some questions. And that has convinced me about the importance of curiosity because the most exciting people I meet I was introduced to by somebody else or somebody that I know said, you have to meet so-and-so. And when we don't make those connections, we're really missing an opportunity to grow and learn and expand our world. And I think that's critically important today when we're all dealing with this larger issue of staying home, lack of communication in the normal way when we're out and about and seeing people and losing touch with each other as humans. Mm -hmm. And so you have to make an extra effort to, to reach out. So what you did is a, is a wonderful thing for um, helping the community thrive that has enriched us all. Oh, thank you for saying that. No, it's very important. Agreed. And part of being in quarantine, I'm in Los Angeles where we're really shut down in LA and have been for a while that, and I work from home, thankfully, but I have lost that element of being able to connect in person with people. And I like to be social in that way. So I thought about how can I stay connected to interesting people and still stay creative. So hence this podcast and tying in the military background, meeting women who have done really amazing things with their lives. Can you take us on your origin story of where you're from originally and your journey into the Air Force? I'm from Columbus, Ohio, uh, born and raised, and I really, really wanted to go to the Air Force Academy. I just knew I wanted to be in the Air Force. I loved airplanes. I wanted to fly. I liked the leadership aspect of it. And all of the interesting people that I knew had great leadership stories. And so... I knew I wanted to do something that would be challenging and exciting and see the world. We always had National Geographic magazines at at my house and the covers had these interesting places. And I knew if I joined the military, I could be part of something bigger and see the world. That was so exciting. Uh, So I applied and I did not get into the Air Force Academy. I was crushed. I got a Falcon Foundation scholarship, which is a preparatory scholarship and went to New Mexico Military Institute for my first year of college and spent a year in Army ROTC. It was an Army military junior college, um, and my classmates were preparing to go be in the Army. And a few of us were preparing to go to service academies after our first year. Reapplied to the Air Force Academy, and I got in. Thrilled. Got to go to the Air Force Academy. I went there for the summer of basic training. They call it BEAST. 
hated it, yeah. quit, left, came home. It was a terrible decision, but you know, you don't look back at your 19 year old self and, and try to judge that too harshly because at the time I, I was making a decision that I thought was, I don't know. I don't know if I thought it was in my best interests, but I just knew I couldn't be there. And I was at the same time crushed because that was my dream. And what do you do when your whole dream falls apart? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I came home, went to Ohio state and joined air force ROTC. And I found a home there and I loved it. I loved it. It was just the path for me. And I wouldn't have seen that if the universe hadn't forced me into it. I studied hard. I wasn't the best student at Ohio State, but I earned a pilot slot somehow. I worked really hard in ROTC and did some extracurricular things and was really passionate about communications and ended up getting a pilot slot. So I was really fortunate to do that because I was in a very small year group. And so they offered very few pilot slots that year to the Air Force Academy students who were graduating and to the ROTC students. So I went off to Columbus Air Force Base and I thought, as all young pilot students do, I want to fly fighter planes. I went through pilot training and I had four instructor pilots and they were all C-141 cargo pilots. And talking to them, I figured out that's how you see the world and that's how you do great things in the Air Force. And that I knew was the course for me. Of course, there's other ways to do great things in the Air Force, as you knew, but that was the one that called me. That was the one that spoke to me. So I lobbied for a cargo pilot slot, which very few people do because you want to go be fighter pilots, um, but I loved it. So I got my first assignment to McGuire Air Force Base, and I spent four years flying C-141s, flew around the world, got to go see everything I, I wanted to see. It was so exciting and so eye-opening to me to see that the rest of the world lived so differently. I mean, I knew it. You know it. You read the magazines, you see the shows, and you know, even in the 80s and 90s, you know that the world is a much bigger place. But when you get to see these places in the world and, and serve your country at the same time, um, it just really fulfilled something for me. And I think really added to my curiosity. And what kind of cargo were you taking out? Yeah, uh, this was post Gulf War. So it was 95, 96, 97. Um, I first got to my cargo base in 97 because it, it takes about a year and a half of training to, to get to that point where you're an actual cargo pilot. And the cargo was mostly commissary goods, special forces missions, humanitarian missions, presidential support missions. My first cargo mission into the Middle East, and this is you know post-desert storm, they're still running cargo throughout and, and trying to figure out what's the situation in the Middle East now that we've done the, the first Gulf War, taking a full cargo plane full of supplies into Kuwait City. And so we land at Kuwait I get off the airplane and I run around to the back because my first mission, I want to see what we've just carried overseas from the, the States through through Germany and Eastern Europe. And, and we land in, in the Middle East and I'm watching them unload all of these cargo pallets. Um, somebody lifts the netting because they're putting it on the forklift from the back of the plane. And it's pallets and pallets of cup of noodles. <laughs> and I was so deflated. I thought I was saving the world and it was cup of noodles, literally cup of noodles. So um, in case you're wondering what the troops eat in the Middle East, apparently they have a lot of cup of noodles. 
I was crushed. And talking about it with people, I realized that the troops in the Middle East need normal supplies too. I mean, they get commissary goods and they've got to, you know, have regular dorm food. And so it, it kind of, every experience like that opened my eyes to the military is not a magical place. It's regular people doing regular jobs in extraordinary circumstances. And I loved it. I, I really enjoyed my Air Force career. I spent um, 10 years on active duty. I spent 10 years in the reserve and I retired with 20 years and three months of service. Um, right on. Yeah. Really proud of that. After I flew the C-141, I flew the C-5 at Dover Air Force Base, and I, I did that for three years. And when was this? This was right after September 11th. In fact, when September 11th happened, I was in school at Altos Air Force Base training on the C-5. So I show up a month later at Dover Air Force Base as a, a brand new C-5 pilot. And they said, how much experience do you have in the 141? And, and I told them I had been an instructor pilot with how many thousands of hours of flight time and talked to the training department. And they said, great, you're upgrading the aircraft commander like right away. So went on my first three-week mission. At that point, it was November of 2001. And so cargo planes in the Air Force, as you can imagine, got really busy really fast. So I flew with a lot of crew members who were who would have otherwise had prolonged training experience, except everything was on the fast track now. So you went and got your mission ready qualifications right away. Um, you flew long missions. Every time you went out on a mission, you were gone for three weeks, home for 12 hours, gone for three weeks, home for 12 hours. I've never been so exhausted in my life. Did that for, for three years. It wasn't always at that ops tempo, but we are moving a lot. I flew on a C-5 once, and I couldn't believe how massive it was. The inside felt like a stadium, and I can only imagine the insane halls you all were loading and transporting. Yeah, this wasn't a cup of noodles anymore. We did a lot of missions into the Middle East, all over the Middle East, a lot of Iraq um, the first time I went into into Baghdad, we were sitting on the ramp, and a C-5 normally takes four hours from touchdown at a location to take off because it takes four hours to unload that airplane and mm. reload it again. And they can open the nose and load through the nose, and they can open the tail and offload through the tail or go either direction or go both directions. Um, and it's so big, you can put six school buses in it or six fire trucks two M1 Abrams tanks, a whole lot of supplies of everything the military needs to do their uh, to do their job. So we were moving household goods back and forth as people were PCSing during this time. Lots of ammunition, lots of humanitarian supplies, lots of medical equipment, all sorts of everything. And so the first time that I went into Baghdad, uh, you know, your your nerves are, are on edge and um, you realize the importance of what you're doing. So our, our orders were to offload and onload as quick as possible and get out. So normally you need permission to take off sooner than your scheduled takeoff time because they're coordinating airway routes for you, diplomatic clearances to overfly certain countries. The ground forces are also coordinating so that they stop firing along your flight path at your scheduled time of takeoff. And so these are all in the op board and everything is very, very coordinated. But on many of those missions, we were just um, scheduled to go ASAP. As soon as you're done, you go out, you coordinate, and then command post and other communications channels will take care of coordinating the safety 
parts of the mission. So we offloaded, we onloaded, and I called for clearance to uh, start engines so we could get out of Baghdad because it's, you know, hostile environment. And uh, they denied us permission. So we we waited five minutes. We called again later. They denied us permission. So we sent somebody inside into the command and control tent because you don't want to make open communications on the microphone a lot of times. Turns out we were holding for takeoff because a 19-year-old soldier had just died in a combat operation and they wanted him airlifted out as soon as possible. And I was um, struck by the audacity of my ego to think that we had um, priority to take off and they were holding us up. How dare they hold us up? And when I realized that there was, it's like that immediate moment of bigger picture Mm -hmm. and never was it clearer for me that when they say service before self, they meant service before self. And I wasn't quite um, aware of the magnitude that I would feel when I figured that out. So of course we waited and they, they brought this soldier onto the aircraft and normally they are, there's a process of taking care of a fallen soldier and they are put in a, in a service box draped in an American flag. And so you see those pictures on TV of the cargo plane and all the flag draped coffins are lined up appropriately. But we were going fast that day and we needed to get out. And as we're sitting on the ramp and waiting for clearance and waiting for our soldier, who we designated as part of our crew now, we're seeing smoke clouds go up in the distance because there were there was active bombing going on around the base. So we got our soldier and there were so many casualties that week of the war that we didn't have enough American flags. So I brought a soldier home with no flag. And the entire crew, we took our American flags off of our flight suit and put it on his coffin because our soldiers come home with flags. And that gets me. Every time I I share that story, um, I just can't help but feel grateful for the opportunity to have been in that position, to be there for him and to be there for the crew and to learn from my crew what teamwork meant in that moment when we all had to rally about the importance of mission and service. That is a very powerful story. I learned a lot on that one um, and not through any piece of mechanics, just simply by being in that moment. Uh, My whole world opened up when you see something bigger than you. And all of those pieces of situational awareness are, I think, what led me to ask more questions. What else is there? How do you get good at seeing these things? How do you adapt when the environment is changing? Uh, Because if you don't, you'll be stuck. There, there is no thriving if you can't get past a current situation. Sometimes there's no surviving if you can't get past a current situation. And I credit the military for teaching me about situational awareness in two aspects. One is a pilot and having to be aware of uh, what's developing around you, how systems are responding, how... Um, the environment is changing because 
being a pilot is proactive and reactive at the same time. And so there's a lot of focus and concentration on what ifs, what if this happens, what if that happens, but also in the people environment. And I don't think a lot of people discuss what the military teaches you about human characteristics enough. But if you're not aware of how the people around you are handling a situation, it's all about to go downhill. So you get really aware of how your troops are responding in a situation, how your commanders are handling leadership situations, how the rest of the airfield is adapting to the current situation, how the enemy is handling situations. You do a lot of study of, of all of that. And uh, for me, that all, that all tied together um, later when I went to study about a flux mindset. Yes, I want to talk about the flux mindset because I feel like I live in that world. But before you studied, well, formally studied the flux mindset, you transitioned out of active duty and into the commercial airline industry. Can you quickly touch on that? I went from active duty flying C-5s to a reserve unit at the same base flying C-5s, and I went into the airlines at the same time. I went to fly for Airtran Airways. Um, they don't exist anymore. They were acquired by Southwest. And I flew at Airtran out of Atlanta, and I was flying C-5s out of Dover. My husband was doing the same thing. He was also in the airlines and commuting to our reserve jobs at Dover, flying C-5s. And then in the late 2000s, Congress reallocated which bases would fly the C-17. And so our base was able to get C-17s. And so we had to make a choice. Do we find another C-5 unit or do we stay in our unit at Dover and transition to fly the C-17, which involved going to the schoolhouse to uh, for four months to learn to fly C-17s and then taking active duty orders for a year to a year and a half to train on the C-17 to become a fully proficient crew member. So we opted to go to the C-17s. So we took a year and a half out of our civilian jobs. We went on military leave, went back into the Air Force and transitioned to the C-17. During that time, I decided I needed to go get an MBA as well because I wanted to understand business a little bit better now that I'm a civilian and in the airlines and seeing how a civilian corporation runs and what the airline industry is like. I went to Georgia Tech and got my MBA, so I was kind of triple commuting to, to do all of that with the skills that I learned in the military. You handle multiple jobs at the same time because no pilot is just a pilot, just like you know, no pick your favorite military position is only that position. You always have ancillary jobs and additional duties. Mm -hmm. And somehow there's some leadership skills they're teaching you along the way with all those additional duties. But when I hear people say, well, you were a pilot, so you wouldn't understand it. It, it kind of drives me mad because nobody is just a uh, anything in the military. Oh yeah, I had so many additional duties and I think that's one reason why I'm able to multitask so well today. <laughs> so for you, you're a pilot in the commercial airline industry and you're in the reserves and you were clearly still curious because you decided to pursue an MBA in another city. What was that like? The people in my class were 50 other 
mid-career, very intelligent civilians. Uh, there were a couple that were veterans from, from way back, but I was the only currently serving military member and felt like I wanted to catch up with all that they had been learning as civilians in, in civilian roles. So I spent a lot of time doing that, so much so that my husband had to be my Sherpa, and I could not have done this without the support of, of my family and my, my close friends and, and my husband. So I was basically studying all the time, and my husband had my logins for my, uh, he would bid for my airline schedule, and then he would work with this Air Force squadron for my flying currency and the missions I was going to be on and what dates I was coming up to Dover to serve. And then I would get up in the mornings and think, what's going on today? And he'd say, it's okay. Tomorrow you're getting on a flight to go to Philadelphia to drive to Dover. You've got three days in Dover. You're going to get all your currencies done. And then you'll come home and you've got a trip two days after that. But today you have to be at the finance department by 10. Go. Oh, whoa. And so we kind of lived like that for a year and a half while I was uh, getting my MBA. But I love school. I like the academic environment, learning with people and in an environment with people and asking questions and building off of topics of discussion. I do not, however, subscribe to the school where everybody has to go to college. I, I've got a, a dear friend named Jill and she didn't go to college and she's a strong believer in trade schools and she owns a hair salon and she's a very prominent businesswoman. And I liked school. That doesn't mean it works for everybody. And I don't think everybody should go to college. I think everybody ought to be presented with the opportunity to join the military or go to a trade school or pursue your artistic endeavors, or go out into the world and figure it out. Some people need to take a gap year or a gap 10 years and go travel and do their own independent thing. And if you can financially support yourself doing that and be a good person in this world, um, then we need more of you. That curiosity and that ability to ask questions is what I think we ought to foster in people in business, children, people in an educational environment, politicians and community leaders, people in medicine. If there weren't people in medicine right now asking, how else could we do this? What are we missing? What can we learn from technology? How can we adapt what we're doing? What did we learn from the plague 100 years ago? If there weren't people asking all of these questions, then we will never come out of this. And so I hope there's a lot of people asking how do we make this better? How do we look at it through different eyes? Um, in an article that I read early in my research for my doctoral studies, it was an interview with General Martin Dempsey. He was talking about training and how do we train soldiers to adapt to the future. He was interviewed by Duke University, and he stated that leaders need to be inquisitive so that they are able to ask questions at the earliest levels. And then at mid-levels, they need to be adaptable. They need to learn how to change and evolve. And then ultimately, they need to learn to be innovative. And that was the life cycle of training that he was trying to perpetuate through the Army's new training programs. And of course, everybody's not on board because change is hard. It takes us a long time to get to the place where we are and we get comfortable and nobody likes to change when it's comfortable. But evolution is necessary because change 
happens. Yeah, and we've seen that demonstrated with this pandemic, and especially earlier in the year, around March, when the majority of the country shut down and there was so much change. It was a crash course in volatility and uncertainty. And tragically, I mean, who could have foreseen how long this would be going on with people losing their jobs and businesses and illness? And long term, it's now December 2020. We're seeing what you're saying about asking questions and how we can move forward and learn from this. And this really aligns with your research and being in the flux agent space. So can you speak to your flux agent research and how it applies to where we're at today? People started asking me, why are you doing all these things? Why are why did you go back to school? And why do you have two jobs? And uh, why are you in all these organizations? And, and I was, I was a member of a lot of associations and I find that there was a question about what, where is all the curiosity going? And it was early 2010s that we started looking back at the financial crisis of 2008 and globally, people were having to change how they did their jobs. A few things were happening at that time. The millennials were coming of age in the workforce, and this is a very large group of people coming into the workforce. Uh, schools have become phenomenally expensive. So all of these people graduating from college had just massive debt. Uh, the real estate market was crashing. So people were losing their homes and the millennials were moving back home. And there was just this convergence of job loss and financial crisis and chaos in the markets. There was the rise of the gig economy. People were doing multiple jobs. People were becoming entrepreneurs because they had to. They were launching businesses because they had to. So we saw that the traditional way of working was changing. And having been in the military, then been a civilian and going back to school and, and having some other jobs, uh, people were asking me, well, how, why are you doing this intentionally? A lot of people are doing it because they have to. And I found it was because it satisfied some of my curiosity about what people do in life and how they behave, but it was also driving me towards other questions of, is this something that we can do purposely to help evolve business. So I started looking at research done by General Dempsey, like we, we talked about, how are you changing and adapting programs in the military as society is evolving? The, the people coming in the military today are not the people that were coming in during World War II or forced to go in during Vietnam or even just joining randomly in the heyday of the 80s. People that are joining the military now are educated, they're smart, they come from all sorts of diverse backgrounds, high and low, and they've got skills that didn't exist when the military was the military of the Vietnam War, the, the Korean War. So there's got to be a way to examine the people that have all of these diversities diversity of skill, diversity of mindset, um, let alone diversity of biographical characteristics. And there's not a lot of research on a comprehensive person out there. So I did for my thesis what they tell you not to do. I took six different areas of research and smashed them all together to see if I could form a psychographic outline 
psychographics being um, what you value, what you honor and what you uphold versus your demographics of who you are. Um, psychographics are what people sell to. They want to make you feel good. So you buy something. They don't sell you something because you're of a certain ethnic or religious group. So there's got to be a way to psychographically analyze the types of people who do multiple jobs, who are very curious and innovative. And then additionally, is there a way that we can capitalize on that and train people in business, educate them in school, or involve our communities in it so that we adapt to these interesting situations like we find ourselves in now with a pandemic or in 2008 with a financial crisis or in the early 2000s with the uh, boom of the internet. And every 10 or 15 years, there will be some radically different, unimaginable global issue that we will all have to adapt to. So how do we form people to make that? And I was told that it, it couldn't be done. You can't form a comprehensive, you know, you just handle these things one at a time. So through my research, I found that there's five different traits that will make you consider yourself a flux agent. Boundaryless career attitudes, intrinsic motivation, a growth mindset, extroversion, and openness to new experience. To touch on them lightly, boundaryless career attitude means that you don't feel like you're held captive to any set of circumstances, physically, psychologically, or emotionally. If you get uh, an acting job in India, you might take that because it's interesting. You are not bound by location. Um, if you if your business is going to go virtual, you might go with it because emotionally you're not tied to your office space. Um, intrinsic motivation is that fire within you that's driving you to do that thing that you're going to do no matter the situation and however it's manifested. So I wanted to serve my country. I was determined to do that. It was able to manifest itself through my service in the Air Force. Um, I'm sure there's other ways that I could have satisfied that need, but I was determined to do it. And that's uh, how, how my life path went. Growth mindset are People with a growth mindset see all things in their path as an opportunity for learning. Failure is part of the process. The more you fail and get up, the better you're going to be at it. You are not afraid of some big circumstance because it's hard or because you don't yet have those skills. You'll find a way. Extroversion means that you draw energy from other people. Not that introverts don't, but people who are extroverted tend to be in groups where they will ask questions and build off of. So if you're gonna brainstorm in your office on a whiteboard, you'll come up with some really great things. But if you're gonna brainstorm with a group of people, the whiteboard better be 10 times as big. And finally, openness to new experience. If you're not willing to be a little bit brave, try something new and risk an emotional exposure, then you're going to miss out on some things that you didn't see the possibility of beforehand. So when you, when you take all that boundarylessness, uh, intrinsic motivation, growth mindset, openness to new experience and extroversion, you're going to get the type of person who will thrive in the military because you are serving in a certain capacity. For me, I was a pilot, 
but I also ran a safety program. And if my safety program is going to be any good, then it has to draw on all my skills as a pilot. But the other skills that I got by being an officer, by going to college, by flying downrange, by being in combat, by um, having a family life that looked a certain way, and by joining groups, everything that I am. The more that you think you're a flux agent, the more that you are. It's a self-perpetuating thing. There's not a, I have a test scale that you can take and it will tell you how flux you are. But through all my research, uh, it turns out that if I describe a flux agent to you and you say, yeah, that's me, I identify with it, you're going to score really high on the flux scale. Um, you don't need the test to tell you that you're a flux agent. And just because you are or aren't or partially identify with this doesn't mean that you're not going to change and be something different later. It's a manifesto to you control your destiny. And the more bold you are with your career choices and your life choices, the more bold your opportunities are going to be in return. I 100% identify as a flex agent. And I got really excited when I read about your research because I felt like finally something that I can identify with. Did you have a lot of resistance to your professors with this theory? So when I went to get my doctorate, I went to school in Europe. I went to University of Paris, Dauphine. I wanted to go to a European school because the, the students were from all over the world. And when you're in a situation where people are from different cultures and backgrounds and all except one, um, my Kiwi girlfriend, the, uh, the other students all spoke English as a second language. And the program was in English. So there's a whole thought process and learning process that's different than when I went to Ohio State and I got my bachelor's. In a doctorate program, you're forced to defend yourself. Nobody cares if you get a doctorate. Um, you, you don't fail a doctorate. You either complete it or you don't. And you don't complete it out of disinterest or you never come to a consensus that your professors agree with. So for me, when you ask, was there resistance to it? They're not there to tell you no. They're there to ask you why. And so it's, it's like a, a child and a parent. Well, why? Well, why? Well, why? And I, I had to keep saying, because this. And they'd say, oh, but why? Why does a boundaryless attitude matter? Well, then I'd go do more research. And then I'd talk to other people. And then I I would read more things on the internet. I looked at business literature and, and I'd interview people. And the, so the question when you go to get a doctorate is, so what? And when you can adequately answer the question, so what? Then you're ready to give your dissertation. And you, you're assigned an advisor. And I, I went in his office and I, I, I showed him my whole very close to finished dissertation. And he said, so what? And I said, because it matters. It's because of this and this and this, and that's a flux agent. And you can like it or not. And he said, all right, we're ready. So I, that was it. I went to uh, defend my dissertation after that, whole day long process. And, um, and I, I knew that I was able to articulate what was driving me crazy all those years, which is 
Why do you do all that? How do we create change? Why is that important in an evolving world? And when I was confident enough to back that up with sources, to describe it in different situations, uh, in business, in the military, um, in communities, to a foreign audience with English as a second language, I've never felt so good. That was the best thing I've ever done. And it's, it's not one of those things where, well, you've done it because research never ends. So you're, you're still always looking at this because, well, then there, there's another great author and then there's a global pandemic. And then there's a different way that people are working now. I, I finished my doctorate in 2016, totally different work environment now. So there's more questions to be asked. Yeah. And, and I connected so strongly to your flux agent description because I grew up in a family with a traditional mindset that you stay in a job, a company, and in my family, the company was predominantly the military for 25, 30 years and you retire. So many people in my family took that route. Well, I was the first woman to go into the military, and I knew that I wasn't going to stay in long enough to retire. So when I got out after eight years and moved to Las Vegas, a city that I had only visited for one day six years prior, my family was like, what? And they didn't understand that I was leaving a job that I was halfway into retirement. But to me, it was so exciting and scary, but in an unknown opportunity awaits me kind of scary. And I got a job as a cocktail waitress in a casino. And although it was financially fulfilling, creatively, it crushed me. So I walked away from it. And even a casino executive came up to me and was like, do you realize what you're walking away from? Have you really thought this through? And I was like, yep, I got other things I have to explore. And that's been my path ever since. I moved to New York City. I collaborated with other artists. I did theater and toured a show to a, a few different cities in the U.S. And then I moved to L.A. with no job, no connections, but a drive and curiosity. And doors are opening. And to my family, I think they're constantly biting their nails for me. But to me, it's exciting. And it's all aligned with your flux agent ideology. So you're on... The board of the Abington Foundation, a nonprofit organization for women who pursue not just STEM careers, but STEAM career paths. Share with us what the foundation is and how you see the next five or so years ahead. That is a great question. And I applaud your ability to see that when the universe is giving you opportunities, and opportunities aren't always things you get to do. Sometimes they're things that you get to leave. And I'm so grateful that you had the opportunity to serve in the military and to leave the military when the time was right for you. And to do something radically different than that, go to Vegas and work in the gaming system and be a part of that and add that to your experience and your repertoire and your understanding and your situational awareness and your knowledge and take that and translate it into something else totally different. People are not always able to do that. And so I work with 
Abingdon Foundation, which is a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to empowering women in STEAM fields, STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. Because if you don't have arts as part of the STEM curriculum, you don't get good design, you don't get um, innovative thinking, you don't get harmony, um, environmental consciousness, and an ability to do the hard tech science math fields with elegance and grace that elevate them to the scientific fields that change the world. We are very excited about and dedicated to including the A in STEAM for the arts. And a lot of organizations are recognizing this important aspect of STEM, STEAM curriculum now. Um, so we're on the forefront of that, and we are trying to become a hub of information where people can go and get information about STEAM, girls and women, to be able to thrive in fields that they are traditionally uh, underrepresented in. Traditionally, that's changing in a lot of places. Um, it will never reach parity in some career fields, Um but we want to make sure that people are exposed to these things so that they are able to consider pursuits, careers, hobbies in STEAM fields so that they too can generate new ideas about the way things work in the world, new ways to solve problems, new ways to think logically, creatively, mathematically, and become the pioneers of whatever the future of work looks like in the 2020s and the 2030s and the 2100s, a hundred years from now, where will we be if we give girls and women the opportunity to be exposed to things they didn't know that existed, that they might be really interested in, that are frankly fun and challenging and lively so we give at Abingdon Foundation scholarships in the form of conference entry, um, networking, and education so that we can, uh, well, every year we bring a woman with us to the Women in Aviation Conference. We have also attended conferences with scholarship winners in tactical and outdoor fields in nautical fields like scuba diving and in technology for the first time this year. We have a new technology scholarship that we'll be announcing next month. So you're actually the first non-Abingdon Foundation person to hear about it. So that will be very exciting. Um, that's a very exciting announcement coming up for us next month. So yeah, the work with Abingdon Foundation is very important because we're trying to expose girls and women to careers and fields that they might not have considered before. So in your own experience as a young girl growing up, wanting to be a pilot, did you have a female pilot in your life that you looked up to who inspired you? I did not. And people ask me, why did you want to be a pilot? I think that's the number one job interview question for pilots is what in your life made you want to be a pilot? Um, and I don't have a really great story for that other than I was exposed to a lot of different career fields and activities as a kid. 
my parents always made my sister and I take one of everything. So we took one ballet, one tap, one music, one sport, um, one art, one Girl Scouts. Um, We learned to cook. They said that they didn't know what we would be when we grew up. So they wanted to make sure that we were exposed to one of everything. Now we didn't have to pursue, we pursue a lifelong dedication to one thing or the other. But if you signed up for track and you started on track, you're going to finish the season in track. You don't have to do it next year, but you're, you're going to do, you know, every year it was, and we didn't do everything. We weren't overscheduled kids. There was a lot of time for running in the, around in the backyard and doing imaginary games. And we did a lot of creative things, uh, a lot of art. Um, but we were exposed to all of that. And so I never thought that I couldn't do something because I was a woman or I couldn't do something because it was mechanical or hard or my parents didn't do it. Uh, I really was raised to think I can do anything. And the Abington Foundation is empowering the next generation of women to think that way too. Uh, Share a little bit about the scholarship program you offer, because I read an article about how you had a STEAM scholarship that nobody applied for. Right. Yes. And so I, I love that story too, because we were giving away a scholarship and nobody applied for it. So we had $5,000 that we just tucked back in the bank account because nobody applied for this. And I remember applying for scholarships in college and thinking, I'm never going to get this because there's so many people that will apply for it. So when that happened a couple years ago and nobody applied for our scholarship, again, suddenly big light bulbs went off for me. Barriers were broken down to think that if I want something, I'm not going to apply for it. Um, if And additionally, if I don't think that I understand all the directions or if I don't think I'm qualified for it or I don't know exactly what the format is supposed to be, I now know just email the people. If they put their email address on there, they want you to email them and say, how do I make this better? Did you get all my materials? Do I need to spell check it? Was that what you were looking for? Our email address is hello at abingdomfoundation.org email us. I, I answer most of the emails. There's a, a couple other people on the team that are really good at answering the emails and we're looking to give away opportunities. Do you find that people do reach out to you? They do. Um, not so much at the foundation because I think people find approaching organizations a little bit more impersonal. I also run a platform called Boundaryless. Uh, that website is boundaryless.xyz and I mentor people in career and a lot of things on flux agents, a lot of things on management and a lot of career transition questions um, and ask me about mentoring things. And I get told a lot out of the blue that I'm somebody's mentor. Like I heard there's a couple people that I hardly know and they have introduced me as their mentor. And at first I was just so surprised. And now I think, well, we should all be introducing each other as, as our mentors. Next time I introduce you to somebody, Melissa, I'm going to tell them that you're my mentor because I've learned so much by listening to your podcast. I went and binged all of the, so I've listened to every episode and the people that you have hosted just have phenomenal stories. And I have learned so much. Thank you for saying that. 
Um, but I'm very humbled. I really feel like this is about everybody else and and not about me. It's it's about us collectively. That's exactly right. So I like to wrap everything up by asking if a young woman were to come up to you today and say she's thinking of joining the military, what would you say to her? Run, run faster, go towards it, do it, try something new. If you have an inkling that this might be for you, please go do it. Go ask questions. Just go ask questions. Um, go through an officer training program if you think that's what you want to do. Go enlist in any one of the services. And we have a new service now. I'm very excited about the Space Force. I just learned today they're going to call them the Guardians. No. <laughs> I just think it's so cool. <laughs> there, and there's historical references for that. But we're now going to have soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Guardians. This is the first I'm hearing of this. Interesting. I, wanna, I might have to re-enlist. <laughs> It's an excellent example of adaptation. You know, where, where is the military going? And, and a few flux people were brave enough to propose, let's go Space Force and let's call them the Guardians. So I had just applaud that. Um, and anybody who's on the forefront of that right now is going to be able to say, I was part of the Space Force in the first few years, you know, and they're going to evolve and it will just be a really interesting way to watch our services evolve. And I'm so, I'm just beyond excited about that. So if you're considering joining the military, uh, this is such an opportunity to be on the forefront of an emerging technologically advanced community of warriors that will change the world. I'm so excited about it. And so I do encourage people to serve in the military. I love all that flux agents and this new space program for the military. It's all come full circle. Bethany, thank you so much for making time for me today. This has been really fun. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really, really glad that uh, we were put together so that I could find your podcast because I have learned so much. So if you will thank all of your guests for me, I've been trying to look them all up individually. You find the most interesting people. I'm so appreciative of this new form of information and I will continue listening and learning. Thank you again, Bethany, and thank you for listening. If you are a veteran in crisis or are concerned about one, contact the Veterans Crisis Line at 800-273-8255, option one, or visit veteranscrisisline.net. Confidential support is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year.